The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 10, Chapter 4. In Chapter 4, we learn that since Claude Frollo's nocturnal adventure, a strange euphemistic description, he had maltreated Quasimodo constantly. And Quasimodo had borne it all with patience and humility, and without uttering a complaint. One very dark night, as Quasimodo was making his last round in the church, he noticed a collection of black masses approaching in the distance. The sight filled him with alarm. He feared a plot against his beloved refugee. Soon, a crowd had filled the square in front of Notre Dame. This strange and, to the deaf man, silent procession was a terrifying spectacle. To him, they were like an army of ghosts or a fog bank of men. He had a confused sense that a violent scene was at hand. He made the quick resolution that he would resist the attack, dying if need be, and not disturb Esmeralda's sleep. Suddenly, a light shines out and his fears, he thinks, are realized. Below him is a frightful mass of men and women armed with myriad weapons. Clopin Troyfou had organized his men into a triangular battle formation, with himself, the Duke of Egypt, and recently converted vagrant Jeanne at its head. Clopin mounts the parapet of the Parvis, turns toward Notre Dame, raises his voice, and declares that if the girl is not given over to them, they will seize her and plunder the church. Unfortunately, Quasimodo, who has begun preparing for his defense, cannot hear him. Thirty stout men approach the church door and attempt to pry it open with levers and pincers, but it will not yield. Just as they feel the lock beginning to give way, a huge beam falls from the sky, crushing a dozen men on the steps, rebounding to the pavement, and breaking the legs of more in the crowd. They are filled with terror and fierce sorcery, perplexed as they are by this beam which seems to have fallen from the moon. The king of Tunis calls on them to attack, and they discharge a volley of crossbows and hackbutts at the church. Then, using the beam as a battering ram, they resume their efforts to break down the door. As they do, a shower of large stones begins to fall on their heads, cracking men's skulls to right and left. All this was the work, of course, not of a sorcerer, but of Quasimodo. Recalling that masons had been working all day repairing the roof, he used their materials as his arsenal. The vagrants continue their attack with the battering ram, making the heavy door tremble, the hinges shake, and the carvings fly in splinters. It begins to yield. All the vagrants strive to be nearest the door, that they might be first to enter as it opens. But though the intention they proclaimed was to seize the girl and plunder the church, the former, who was always a mere pretext, has been all but forgotten. Their real motivation is the prospect of the three centuries of riches that the church holds in store. Just as they gather to give the battering ram a final effort, a frightful howl arises from among them and dies away. The other men look up to see two streams of molten lead falling from the top of the building into the throng.
the two streams make two smoking holes in the crowd, surrounded by writhing, dying men, and spatter drops of this horrible rain that pierce the skulls of the assailants. Notre Dame has transformed into a strange and terrible sight, with vast flames ascending from the belfries, glowing trefoils, gargoyles vomiting sheets of fiery rain, and the carvings on the towers, demons, dragons, and serpents, appearing to move in the darkness. The leaders of the vagrants withdraw to the porch of the Gondolier house to regroup. Watching the streams of boiling lead streak down the dark façade, they decide they must find another point of weakness in the old church. Clopin asks for the little student Jeanne, who someone answers is probably dead, and for Pierre Gringoire, who someone says took to his heels long before they had even arrived. But at that moment, Jeanne arrives, dragging a ladder behind him. He tells them that at the end of the gallery, which he can reach with the ladder, there is a door leading to the church. He lifts the ladder, places it against the railing, and begins to climb, with a line of men following behind him. As he reaches the balcony and strides over it, he sees the hunchback lurking in the shadows. Quasimodo leaps to the ladder, seizes it, and pushes it from the wall, hurling the mass of men upon it to the pavement, and a few mutilated wretches crawl from the heap of dead. Jeanne is left to face the one-eyed man alone. Declaring that he will henceforth be called the blind, he shoots his crossbow, which is driven into Quasimodo's arm. Quasimodo pulls out the dart, breaks it across his knee, throws the pieces to the ground, and leaps upon Jeanne like a grasshopper. While he grasps both Jeanne's arms in his left hand, he strips away his armor, ominously, piece by piece. Then he picks him up by the feet in one hand, swings him like a sling, and dashes him against the wall, and then lets his corpse fall, where it catches part way on a projection. The horrified vagrants call for vengeance, and from every angle they attack. Quasimodo, fearing for the gypsy girl, wrings his hands and implores heaven to grant a miracle. The second of my posts was called, What Just Happened? I chose as a title of this post the actual words that came out of my mouth as I was reading about the death of Jeanne Frollo. What just happened? I'm still in disbelief. To me, the horror of that scene was disproportionate, and I'm curious whether any of you feel the same way. On the one hand, many horrific things have happened in this novel. Quasimodo pilloried, Esmeralda tortured, etc. But they've been done by evil characters, and our experience of them is supposed to be one of unmitigated horror. This scene was perplexing to me. Jeanne had been a largely comedic character, and yet here he was having his brains bashed out, literally, against a wall. On top of that, his assailant was a good character, acting in confusion, which to me compounded the horror of the assault. There was neither anything funny about the scene, 
nor a tone of real gravity about it. It seemed kind of gratuitous. Of course, the whole of this chapter is dark and violent and gruesome, so perhaps my complaint needs to be made about the whole chapter, or not at all. But the fact that this was one of the characters we know reasonably well, and that he suffers such an abrupt and grisly death, was jarring to me. Did I miss something? Let me know what you think. And the last of my posts was called, Does Notre Dame de Paris Have a Theme? I will never love Notre Dame de Paris anywhere near as much as I do 93, for many reasons. But one of the most important is that I am not at all convinced that Notre Dame de Paris has a theme. It has a captivating universe that is brought to pulsating life in every intricate detail, from its absurd courts to its vagrant slayers to its cells of mourning or of alchemical experiments, and more. It has utterly unique, meticulously drawn, and timelessly memorable characters, from a self-inflated poet to a destroyed and vengeful mother to a tortured priest to a hopelessly naive and ethereally beautiful gypsy girl, among others. It has a stupendous plot that builds in layers upon nail-biting layers as the flames of conflict among our characters are fanned until they erupt into a literal conflagration. But when all those elements do not combine to reveal some single, unified, and thought-provoking insight, I'm left a little bit cold, and I'm not convinced that this one does. I think that perhaps the reason people point to Notre Dame Cathedral as the main character, or even as the novel's theme, is that it truly is the center point and the source of Hugo's inspiration. It seems sincere that he looked at this cathedral, with its inscription, Fate, and thought, what might have happened here? And allowed his imagination to run epically and ingeniously wild. So, I love this novel. I have allowed Hugo to transport me to this fascinating universe all his own. I am invested in the tragedies of its characters, and I want to know what happens next. But I will probably not count it among my all-time favorites, because I don't get to have that unique and soul-stirring experience of being able to fit every last word, deed, and detail into one revelatory whole. I will suspend absolute judgment until we have finished the novel. But at this point, what do you think? Does this novel have a theme? <laughs>